Why renter's insurance? Because fajitas. State Farm renter's insurance covers stuff landlords don't, like smoke-damaged furniture from fajita night gone wrong. Find an agent or get a quote at statefarm.com. You've heard the names before. Daryl Massey. Fred Hanna. Christina Gutierrez. You know the location. But have you heard this name? This call is from Richard Nicholas. An inmate at a Maryland correctional facility. This call will be recorded and monitored. A two-year-old girl was murdered. From moment one, she just laughed and smiled. She was a beautiful baby. And nothing mattered but getting to know her. And she was just like a ray of light. I mean, she was just a breath of fresh air. She was just, oh my gosh, she was like an angel. And her father was convicted. Did you kill her? No, no, I did not. I did not shoot my daughter. Subscribe now to Convicted, coming late April. More information at convictedpod.com. everyone, this is Insight. I'm Ali and joining me as she tends to do every Monday is Charlie. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. Life is crazy as it normally is. I'm working extra hours in my day job because I'm having a couple of weeks off to go to a little event in Indy next month. I don't think anyone's heard of it. It's CrimeCon. But I'm so super excited to actually see you in person and be in the same time zone for a weekend anyway. It's going to be really crazy to finally be able to say, oh yeah, we've actually met face to face. It's a novelty for our podcast. Exactly. And a little announcement. I'm having a meetup in Sydney for any Sydney side true crime fans. It will be on Saturday, May 27 at 6pm at the Bear Bar at Haymarket. If you want more information, head over to our Facebook page. And I will be having a meetup that same weekend, hopefully in Kansas City. Hopefully it'll be Sunday the 28th. I'm still waiting on final confirmation from our location, and it will probably be in Lenexa, which is outside of the Kansas City area on the Kansas side. Again, it'll be on our Facebook page. I'll get something on the website when things are finalized. If you can't find any of that, you can email us at insightfulpod at gmail.com to ask Allie or I for more information on our meetups. So today I've made a selfish choice. This wasn't a listener suggestion, but it's a case that I just wanted to do for a while now. It's the abduction and murder of seven-year-old Maria Ridoff. And while aspects around this case are still very much active, this is the oldest cold case in history to have actually gone to trial to get a conviction in recent years. But that is something that we definitely will talk about later on. But this case raises a lot of questions about the legal process, such as how do you go about trying to get a conviction for a case this old? And what is the implications around that in which this case is definitely an example of that? And if anyone out there has the time and the means to do so, this case would make an amazing long-form podcast There is just so much going on that it deserves it. Maria deserves it, honestly. 
But let's get started. This case takes us back to 1957 to the town of Sycamore, Illinois. Maria Elizabeth Ridolph was born on March 12, 1950 to parents Michael and Frances Ridolph in Sycamore, Illinois, where she would live her entire too short of a life. She was the youngest of four children. She had an older brother and two older sisters. Her father, Michael, worked at a wire and cable factory and Frances was a stay-at-home mum. Maria was a bright kid. She was on the honour roll at West Elementary School where she was in the second grade. Where the Ridoffs lived in Sycamore, it had a population of about 7,000 in 1957. It was a farming town with people of who you would expect to be in a farming town. Everyone knew everyone. You couldn't leave your home without having a bunch of people wave hello or stop you at the grocery shop to see how your crop was growing or want to talk to you about the local high school basketball team. It was just a town where you felt safe. I mean, this is a time before Amber Alert notifications coming through to your phone and missing kids on milk cartons. You felt safe letting your kids walk around the streets until bedtime and you didn't have to lock your doors. You just trusted your neighbours. Now, the timeline for the day in question, it is what is most debated about in this case. We will start with what we definitely know what happened and when. Things that can be proven with timestamps. For everything else, we will clear that up later as to why certain people have a vested interest for when the events happened at a particular time and what that means for Maria, our lead suspect, and the solvability for this case. We know for sure that Maria and her friend Kathy left school and walked home just like they did every other school day at 3.30 p.m. It was the first Tuesday of December And they could feel snow in the air. And I grew up in a snowy place. And I swear, people don't believe me unless they grew up in a snowy place. You can smell the snow coming. And so I know exactly what they were experiencing. They went to Maria's house to play first. And they were cutting out snowflakes. Dinner time came around. And around 5 p.m., Kathy headed home for dinner with her family. While the Ridoffs also sat down to dinner And they probably sat down sometime between 5 and 5.30. The first snow had come, and it was the first snowfall of the entire season. Maria was excited about that, and since she had gotten home from school with Kathy, she was just talking about wanting to go play outside in the snow. This would have been me as a child, but Frances noted this was a little odd because Maria wasn't the outdoors type of child. She liked to sit at home, play with her dolls, brush their hair, that sort of thing. But this was the first snowfall, so maybe Maria was just really eager to get out in the snow. And after pleading all afternoon and into the evening, Frances finally relented and told her she could go out as long as she had someone to go with her. So, of course, she called Kathy, and they quickly arranged to meet outside. And so when the time came after dinner for them to meet up, Frances helped Maria get her winter jacket on. Maria had a brand new coat that she wanted to wear instead of the hand-me-down from her brother, but knowing it was just going to come home dirty after playing in the snow, running around, that sort of thing, she had her wear the hand-me-down. By the time dinner was over and the coat situation was sorted, it was 5.30 or 5.50 or 6.02 or 6.30. So when Allie was saying there's some discrepancy in the timeline, this is one of those points we don't know exactly. 
And timelines in cases of sudden disappearances like this one, and even more so in this specific one, it's important to know the timeline. But unfortunately, the consistency is not going to get any better from here on out. I think we're pretty much at the end of the consistency of the timeline. Regardless of what time they went out, Maria and Kathy started playing a game that they played fairly regularly. And as a parent, I started feeling the anxiety build as I was reading about it. It's a game that they would call Dodge the Cars or Duck the Cars, pretty interchangeable phrase, and the game was pretty basic. They'd go down to the corner, just two doors down from Maria's house, and as the cars would come around with their headlights, the girls would duck behind a tree to avoid the headlights touching them. They would run in front and in between the cars and the tree, and then there was a bush across the road, then they'd go back again. It was pretty simple fun, but the thought of kids dashing across the snowy and possibly slick road after dark is giving me heart palpitations. And then in front of cars as well. They were on the way home when the two girls were approached by a man. He was average looking. He was average height, average weight, and he had longish wavy blonde hair. The girls didn't see him until he spoke to them, so it's unclear whether he was driving by in his car and saw them, or he just happened to be walking by. He tells the girls his name is Johnny, and he's 24 years old and single. Now, the single part strikes me as a bit odd. These are little girls, and I can't see them wanting or needing to know this information. But anyway, he asked the girls if they like dolls and piggybacks. He then offers to give Kathy a piggyback ride. Now, Kathy is quite a shy little girl and she had never seen this man before, so she refuses. However, friendly and outgoing Maria was happy to accept the ride. She stayed on his shoulders for about 20 yards or so down the sidewalk and then back again. Maria tells Johnny about her new doll that he wants to see. She runs home, which was only two houses away, while Kathy stays with Johnny. While Maria is gone, Johnny tries again to convince Kathy to take a piggyback ride or maybe leave with him to go on a ride with the bus. And while Kathy later reports that she wasn't frightened of Johnny and that he seemed nice, she again felt very shy and uneasy, so she again refused. In the meantime, Maria had gone home and ran past her brother Charles, who was playing records with his friend Randy, and she goes into her parents' room to look for her new doll. Her mother Frances was there reading a newspaper at the time and tells her, like with the jacket, she wasn't to take the new doll outside because it was just going to get dirty and to instead take one of her older dolls, which Maria does agree to and does just that. When Maria returns to where Johnny and Kathy are waiting for her, she shows Johnny the doll. He tells her it's a pretty doll and then offers her another piggyback ride. And they again go the 20 yards down the street and back. It's starting to get late by this stage, as you can imagine, with all this back and forth. It was already dark when they left their homes. It's December and snowing, so it's also pretty cold. Kathy told the pair that she wanted to go home to get her mittens And she tried to convince Maria to come home with her, but Maria insisted on waiting there with Johnny. So Kathy ran home, which was about a block away, a little further than Maria's house, found her mittens and headed straight back. So we're probably looking at 10 minutes, but likely even less. 
When she got back to the corner, Maria and Johnny were nowhere to be seen. And assuming Maria got bored, maybe Johnny had to leave and Maria was bored standing out there by herself, Kathy went to Maria's house and knocked on the door. Maria's brother Charles answered the door and he said that Maria was still outside somewhere and was probably not too far away. Neither of them were alarmed at this point, so Kathy heads back outside. She walked up and down the street calling for Maria several times and returned to the Ridoff house to tell Charles that Maria was not outside, or she wasn't nearby at least, and she must be lost. Michael and Francis headed out looking for her, thinking that Maria had gotten distracted, gone further than she thought she was, and had actually gotten lost, because this wouldn't have been the first time. The year prior, Maria had been gone for so long that her parents did call the police, and just as the search party was getting organized, Maria returned home. Apparently, she had decided to go to the nearby cemetery to play and just not tell anyone. So unlike some missing persons cases where we see the parents immediately panic because this was outside their child's likely behavior, this was actually something Maria would do. Wander off, get distracted, that sort of thing. So they think that maybe she may have gone to Kathy's house. So they call the Sigmunds, who say that Maria isn't there. But this is when Kathy first mentions Johnny. And that the last time Kathy saw her, that's who she was with, and how he tried to get her to leave with him earlier. Now, this obviously alarms the Ridoffs. As I said earlier, this is a town where everyone knew everyone, and they didn't know a Johnny who fit this description. Michael and Francis get into their car and they drive around the streets calling out for Maria. They had a police whistle that they were given last time Maria ran off, so they used that to try and get Maria's attention. They check in at several nearby neighbourhood homes that Maria was known to play with, friends and schoolmates, but she wasn't there. Maria could not be found. So finally, at 10 past eight, Francis files a missing persons report with the police. And again, this is one of the times that we know definitely did happen. We have the timestamp of the missing persons report. And going backwards before we can go forwards, at 7pm, two people, a man and a woman, they hear a child scream near where Maria was last seen by Kathy. They look out their window, but neither report seeing anything. At the time, investigators would later make notes in their case file that they think that the screams were actually Kathy and Maria's family calling out for Maria when they were looking for her. But before the police could even get an official search started, the neighbourhood had already started looking. Kathy's dad, Bud, a friend of his, Tom Brady, and Tom's son, they started to look for Maria at the point where she was last seen, and they looked around inch by inch for anything that could tell them where she went. Near an alley around the corner from where Maria was left with Johnny, two sets of footprints were found. The men used their feet for comparison, and they guesstimated it was a man's foot and a child's foot. These footprints led to another neighbour's, the Johnson's tractor shed, but a search of that and the adjoining barn, there was nothing. The adult footprints continued further down the alley and led up to some tyre tracks, which showed a vehicle had pulled into the alley, turned sharply to the right, and then headed down the main highway out of Sycamore. Within five minutes of the police being notified, they were out setting up roadblocks all around the major roads in and out of Sycamore. They stopped and checked every vehicle. In this case, there is no way the police could have worked quicker 
or more efficiently. They organized the volunteers that had already showed up into search parties. They contacted the local hardware store and they opened up the store so that they could all go in to get to get flashlights to help with the search. Small groups of men went from door to door of every house and they searched the houses, cellars, garages. We saw something similar happen in the June Robles case, which we covered in episode 24, except I didn't read anything in this case of anyone being threatened to be shot if they refused to let them in. From what I understand, everyone openly allowed the searches of their homes. I think maybe the difference here was, I think everyone knew each other. They knew the Riddle family and they were willing to do whatever they could to find her as soon as possible. And you can understand why people would let them in. And you can even understand on one hand why the police did it this way. It's urgent. The priority of the moment is to find the child before anything bad happened to her. But on the other hand, they are letting the average Joe walk into someone else's home with no training. If I was home alone with small children, a single mom, my husband was out of town, something like that, I would be pretty uncomfortable with two or three men demanding access to my home. Like I said, I get why they do it this way, and everyone in this case did allow access, but personally, I wouldn't have found it automatically suspicious if someone didn't allow access. Maria's friend was obviously a really important piece of this case. She was the only person who had seen Johnny. Kathy was put under a 24-hour police guard. She went through a medical exam looking for signs of sexual assault. Remember, we're talking about an eight-year-old. She had to have been scared and confused, but because there wasn't a ransom note or even a weird phone call, there was an immediate concern that this was a sexually motivated crime, and perhaps Kathy had also been victimized before Maria had been taken. If you remember, she was alone with Johnny by her own admission for probably several minutes, and it doesn't end there for Kathy. Police questioned Kathy about Johnny trying to get the best description possible. And hats off to this girl. Her best friend has been taken. I'm sure there was a sense of guilt by Kathy for leaving Maria there. But she worked with the police and gave a pretty decent description. And the police, for their part, did an amazing job to try and help her. They had a range of men line up of different weights and heights for Kathy to point out if they matched Johnny's weight and height. Kathy was able to tell them that Johnny was a white male between 25 and 30 years old, about 5 foot 8 or 172 centimetres tall, and weighing about 180 pounds, 82 kilograms. He had long blonde hair, which was worn in what is described as a duck towel. Now, I did Google this, and if you follow us on social media, you would have seen a picture of this. But basically, it's if you combed the back of your hair only, from the nape of your neck to the crown, you create a middle part and then comb it around the sides of your head. So it looks like the backside of a duck. Personally, I think it looks very strange, but it was very on point for the late 50s. But something that Kathy did remember was something that we did talk about a lot when it comes to identification, and that is unusual features. Kathy remembers Johnny having, quote, small, pretty teeth, and then went on to say that he had a gap in his teeth. When she was asked to elaborate, Kathy said that Johnny was missing his right eye tooth, 
which is a pretty distinctive characteristic that could hopefully help find their guy. So this was a description that was circulated to nearby law enforcement agencies and newspapers, and thousands of tips would come in and they were all followed up. Even in those first few hours, the local police realised that they were in over their head. So the decision was made to call in the FBI for help. Ten FBI agents were originally called in, but this would be up to 29 agents within about 10 days. And then before the investigation would end, there would eventually be 50 agents ultimately involved. For its time, this was almost unprecedented allocation of resources, only rivaled really by that of the Lindbergh baby, which we all know I got a C on my 10th grade history paper on the Lindbergh baby, so thank you, Allie, for putting that in my share of the script. The director of the FBI at the time was J. Edgar Hoover, really well-known name, especially here in the United States. He took a special interest in Maria's abduction and demanded daily updates on the case. The agent over her case had to report directly to him. He requested that all homes and potential dumping sites be checked and rechecked for clues on what had happened to Maria. But it wasn't until December 6th that investigators would get their first real break in the case. And this came in the form of an anonymous tip to the sheriff's office. And the tipster told the sheriff's office that there was a young man named Treshner who was about 20 years old and matched the description of the kidnapper. And to top it off, he also lived in the same neighborhood as the Rudolphs. At first, this threw the investigators because there was no one with that name in the area. But they asked around and realized that the tipster may have misnamed the man he was talking about. A couple doors down from the Rudolphs, there was an 18-year-old by the name of John Tessier. Tessier had only recently moved into his grandparents' house with his mother and his stepfather and half-siblings while their house was being built in another part of town. And then things started to get a little strange when police questioned John's mother. In her first interview, she immediately outright lied, saying, John was home the entire night. That's all there is to it. And two of his half-sisters overheard this, and they knew it was a lie. They remembered that night very clearly, because their father went out to search for Maria, and their mother went to go help make food for the searchers, and their parents locked them in, and if you remember what Allie said at the top of the episode, this is Sycamore before locked doors. The other siblings were in the house, and the parents put one of the other kids in charge. They didn't put the oldest kid, the 18-year-old, in charge, and that's because he wasn't there. So this night is crystal clear memory in their minds, and they remember listening to their mom lie to the police. They were young. They didn't entirely understand why their mother would have lied. And no one asked them to confirm or deny that John was even there. But then John's mother changed her story later when she spoke to the police. She happened to remember that, you know what? He actually wasn't in Sycamore on the 3rd. John Tessier was actually 40 miles or 65 kilometers away in Rockford having a physical for the Air Force. Let's talk more about who John Tessier is. John Tessier was 18 years old. And if you look more into his backstory, it is a bit sad. This is a guy who lost his father very early in life. His father died when he was three. 
His mother remarried and changed his name. He moved to an entirely different country and became part of this entirely new family with different dynamics. As you said, Charlie, he had, I think it was six half-siblings, and it seems like he had a really hard time fitting in. Tessier became known for wandering the streets day and night. He would wave a wooden sword while wearing camouflage pants. The other kids would call him Commando, which I imagine was more to make fun of him than just a friendly nickname because even the younger children would mention that he was a little different or odd compared to other kids his age. Tessier also had a knack of getting into trouble, mostly for domestic arguments between him and his stepfather. There was one time when his stepfather, Ralph, hit him so hard that he had to miss a few weeks of school so the teachers wouldn't see his bruised face and arms. In Tessier's senior year of high school, he had a run-in with a female teacher and was expelled for calling her a bitch. After he was thrown out of the house, for a few months he was basically couch surfing in between different friends' houses, but he then was allowed to return back to his stepfather's house on the condition he enlisted into the Air Force, which he did, or at least he tried to. When he went for the first medical, he failed because they found a spot on his lung that he needed to go back and have checked for a second time on December 3rd, 1957, the day Maria went missing. So this is when Tessier had called from the Air Force recruiting station in Rockford saying that he had failed the second medical exam and he needed to be picked up. And this phone call takes place at 6.57pm. He then called his girlfriend, Jan Edwards, to arrange a date for 9pm because that's when he thought he'd be back in Sycamore. He said he had a bunch of witnesses that could place him there and he was willing to take a lie detector test. He had actually spoken with the Air Force recruiters at the library on base from 10 past 7 for about a half an hour. Tessier told police they actually got back to Sycamore at 9.20 which he remembered clearly because he was 20 minutes late for his date. He went straight to his girlfriend's house and spent an hour there before hearing about the search parties being organised to look for Maria, so he went and joined in there. Of course, the FBI checked out this alibi, and it matched up pretty much how he said. The phone records were checked, and they matched up with his story. The telephone operator reported that there was a man who at least said he was John Tessier, and the call came in at 6.57. The people at the recruiting station remember talking to him, and the results of the polygraph test showed no evidence of deception on Tessier's part, so he was ruled out as a suspect in Maria's kidnapping. Between the alibi and the polygraph test is what ruled him out as a suspect. And as the months wore on, the leads started drying up. The FBI would bring Kathy in several times a week to view lineups of potential suspects. And it was taking a toll on her. She was only eight years old. She had lost her best friend. Other children at school wouldn't play with her because now she was weird and the police kept picking her up at the school to do these lineups. It was a really, really rough time for her. On December 22nd, Kathy did identify one of these photos in one of these lineups as Johnny. And that photo was actually thrown in there more as a test. The police knew there was no way that this guy could have done it. He was actually in prison at the time. And he was put in there and he was kind of rounding out the sample that they needed to do a photo lineup with her. 
obviously he had a rock solid alibi. They knew he was in prison. It's also been reported that he wasn't a terrific match for the physical description of the man Kathy had originally given. 50 years later, when asked about this, Kathy says she didn't remember picking out that person at all. And that leads to part of the problem with this whole case. We're dealing with people who are firstly 50 years older, and also people who have passed away and obviously can't help anymore. Even in investigating this as a cold case and going over the existing statements from the time, follow-ups on these are difficult. With Kathy specifically, we have someone who is quite young at the time and under a lot of stress. Asking people to remember something very specific from when they were eight years old, when a lot of other things were happening around them, that's pretty unreasonable. I would be a mess myself. There is very little that I can remember from that age, and I am still some ways away from being in my 60s. Exactly. I agree completely. I think back to when I was eight. Even I was thinking about the recalling and I, someone I saw. I have thought of some of my friends whose parents I met multiple times when I was that age, and I'm not entirely sure I could pick them out of a photo lineup today, even though I saw them repeatedly when I was eight. And that's repeatedly, not someone she just saw once. In the dark. In the dark. So that's a problem. One aspect of Kathy's description that investigators really focused on was Johnny's teeth, but Kathy changed her description of them. You know, like Ellie said, she first described them as small and perfect and missing one with a little gap. Well, then she insisted they were large and stained yellow and there was a big gap between the front teeth, which is pretty far away from what she originally described them as. Then a month later, she said they were regular teeth, normal color, and only a small gap between the front teeth. Regardless of this changing witness account, which you would expect from a child her age, the FBI were pretty confident that their general description was correct, and they were really just focusing their efforts on it. And the constant stream of lineups did continue right up to 1961, but Kathy never identified anyone else as possibly being Johnny. And then, nearly five months later, on April 26, 1958, retired farmer Frank Sitter and his wife Catherine, they stopped for lunch in the small town of Elizabeth, which is about 100 miles or 160 kilometres from Sycamore. They had a conversation with some of the patrons there about the booming moral mushroom crops. And after listening to this, Frank and Catherine decided to do a little hunting of their own. You know, see if they could find some to take home with them. They drove east along Illinois Route 20, passing through the tiny town of Woodbine, until they came to a large patch of thick woods from a field. And apparently this is the perfect environment for moral mushrooms to grow because the rainfall can't evaporate through the foliage, creating constantly damp soil, and you include the humidity, and voila, you have the mushrooms. When they entered the woods, Frank and Catherine searched for some mushrooms, but they didn't have any luck. They eventually had to push their way through the brambles, like literally push through. It was that dense. As they continued their search, under an open space under a fallen tree, Frank thought he saw the badly decomposed remains of what he thought was a baby deer. He and Catherine went for a closer look, and to what must have been a sight that Look, I don't know if you could ever get it out of your head, but they realised the bones weren't deer because it was wearing children's clothing. 
Frank and Catherine ran back to their car and they drove to a nearby farm where the local sheriff was called. The remains were later identified to be Maria by her parents from the shirt she was wearing and a lock of her hair. And then later, dental records further confirmed it. No autopsy was ever done beyond that this wasn't a death by natural causes and that she would have been murdered. And essentially this case went cold from there and it went cold for many, many years and that is until 2008. A woman contacted the Illinois State Police and told them that her mother had given a deathbed confession in 1994 that implicated her brother Jack McCullough as the kidnapper and murderer of Maria Ridoff. Jack McCullough was the new identity of a man who was previously known as John Tessier. This information comes from John Tessier's younger half-sister, Janet. She stated that her mother, Eileen, said before she died that John was responsible for this crime. He only lived about a block away from the little, where the little girls were playing, and two of the half-sisters witnessed this confession, but it was given directly to Janet, and she was the one who really took on the task her mother gave her. Because Eileen's comments were reportedly, the two little girls and the one that disappeared, John did this, John did this, please tell someone. Janet calmed her mother down by promising she would, she would, don't worry about it. Because her mom was very agitated, and she was also dying, so I'm sure plenty of our listeners have been with a relative who's getting agitated towards the end of their life, and you just tell them whatever... You tell them to calm them down. And so that's what Janet did. She didn't push. She didn't ask, why are you saying this? How do you know John did it? She just, okay, mom, okay, mom. And Eileen died a few weeks later with Janet's promise to tell someone secured. And tell someone she did, or at least she tried to. She called the police in Sycamore, and they bounced her around a bit, telling her to call this jurisdiction, call that office. And they eventually told her there wasn't anything they could do. The only statement they had was this hearsay statement of what a dying woman supposedly said, a woman who was now dead and couldn't answer any follow-up questions. And the FBI, it was pretty much the same. They weren't interested. It was a deathbed confession from a sick woman about someone who had already been cleared through an alibi and a polygraph test. So they weren't going to reopen the case and the investigation based on this. With hoaxes false leads, and this case being nearly 40 years old at that time, I can see why they didn't want to allocate resources to following up this one lead. Though I don't know that it would have really hurt anything to have spent a few days looking into it. Agreed. And Janet gave up for a while. She told the police and she told the FBI what more could she do. Eventually, it was wearing on her and she and her siblings decided to go ahead and give it one more try in 2008. All of the siblings backed her in this, in pursuing this, even though they weren't all convinced John was guilty. They did support her in at least following through with this. This time, she sent the tip to the Illinois State Police, and they were interested in the tip, and they did decide to follow it up. And this opened a new investigation into the murder of Maria and the possible involvement of John Tessier who, like we said at this time, was going by Jack McCullough. Before we go any further, just for the sake of, well, mainly my sake, so that I don't get confused, and that I don't confuse Allie, and we don't confuse our listeners, we're just going to pick a name. Even though Tessier had changed his name, we're just going to keep calling him John Tessier for the remainder of this episode. It'll keep things consistent and much less confusing than introducing a new name into this. 
So let's talk about what Tessier had done since we last left him and why the name change. Well, this officially happens on April 27, 1994, when John Tessier becomes Jack McCullough. He said he changed to his mother's maiden name of McCullough because when she died, it was kind of a way to honour her. And his father-in-law called him Jack before he married. So when he was filing out the marriage license paperwork, he just changed his name to Jack. And I think there is something to this. It's worth noting his family asked him to stay away from his mother's funeral. I don't think he attended. But it does coincide with his mother's passing. She died in January of 1994. And then he changed his name three months later. Now, investigators quickly learnt of an allegation in which Tessier's half-sister, Janine, claimed that in 1962, he had taken her to a house he shared with several friends. He raped her and then let his friends take turns raping her. And it ended up being a bench trial that happened not long before the trial for Maria's murder. And I think we did talk about bench trials in the Gypsy Rose Blanchard case, but... What a bench trial is, it's a trial by judge as opposed to a trial by jury. And in this case, the judge found Tessier not guilty, citing that the state had not met their burden of proof. Tessier did eventually make it into the Air Force after all the failed physicals, and he served for several years, and including some of that time in Vietnam. When he was discharged from the Air Force, he became a police officer, where he got himself into some significant legal trouble. And I think now is a good time to talk about his past crimes, convictions, and alleged crimes. Tessie married four times and divorced three. Some of his former wives have reported odd behavior, and at least one reported some questionable sexualized behavior towards a young teen. And he also had trouble on the police force. He almost lost his job once from allegedly tipping off a suspect about a drug bust. He was accused of meeting women on the job whether it was someone he pulled over for drunk driving or women he met when he was out on routine calls, really just in some ways abusing his authority here as a police officer. He got into trouble for taking photos of a 17-year-old in a topless pose that is described as a Playboy-style pose. Overall, this seems like a guy that is genuinely troubled and almost definitely sexually deviant towards young women. When you start putting together a profile of suspects in Maria's case, and here we have someone who's had issues with sex crimes, who lived near where Maria was taken, and whose mother lied to the police about his whereabouts, it certainly seemed to make sense that the police start digging into Tessier some more. But before they even got back on to Maria's case, John's behavior finally crossed the line for the department in 1982. He was still going by John Tessier at that point, and he was an officer with the Milton Police Department in Washington State. He and his girlfriend at the time had taken in a pair of young teen girls who had run away from home, and one of the girls was a 15-year-old girl named Michelle Weinman. One night, he started kissing her goodnight, which became more and more of a passionate kiss. Then one night he attacked her while she was asleep on the living room sofa. She said he had performed oral sex on her while she just laid there completely frozen in shock. She told a friend who told the school counselor who then alerted the police. Tessier was charged with statutory rape. 
but instead pled guilty to a lesser charge of communication with a minor for immoral purposes. He was given probation instead of serving time, but he was forced to resign from the police force. He claims that he just pled guilty because he couldn't afford to fight it in court. Regardless, he would never work as a police officer again. Michelle moved on with her life and with the trauma for decades before investigators who were investigating Maria's case found her at the bar she worked at and asked her about these charges against Tessier. Then, in the old reports, the police also uncovered a bombshell, really. Maria and Kathy weren't the only girls in the neighborhood offered piggyback rides from someone named Johnny. Five years before Maria went missing, there was another and rather dramatic incident involving another girl who was eight years old. Tessier's grandparents lived in the house behind this girl, and so she knew who he was. She accepted a piggyback ride from him, but he started running really quickly with her on his back, and she got scared and asked to be put down, but Johnny refused to put her down. After he made it about four blocks, a neighbor saw this teenager running with a girl on his back and she's screaming and crying and the neighbor recognized the girl so he called her father and her father left his work got into his car and drove until he found his daughter now john tessie was still running with the sobbing girl on his back so who knows how long this was going on or what in the world he was doing and of course the father yelled at him pretty much physically threatened him, never do that again, stay away from his daughter or else. And being 13 at the time, I'm sure he was definitely intimidated by this dad and he ran off. So five years later, when word got out that Maria was last seen with a Johnny offering piggyback rides, this girl who was then 13 was pulled out of class and interviewed by the FBI. And they saw then what we're kind of seeing now, a pattern of behavior. The book that I read about this case, it's called Piggyback. It also referred to another incident the author likes to refer to as the only violent incident on Tessier's record. However, I would consider the rapes as violent in my books. Any type of rape is a violent assault as far as I'm concerned, and it should be treated as such. But the author talks about the incident in October of 1962 when Tessier accidentally shot a friend of his, Richard Tucker, in the thigh with a 22 caliber pistol while they were target shooting. This was an open and shut case with Tucker supporting that it was a freak accident and no charges were made against Tessier. So the investigators reopen Maria's case and they start investigating and they find a few new pieces of evidence. Because the state police then checked his alibi that cleared him in the original investigation, because how is it possible that he was in two places at once? They spoke to his now former girlfriend, Jan, and asked her about that night, and if she had a photo of him from 1957, they could copy, which she did. Tessier gave her a framed photo that Christmas, But when investigators removed the photo from the frame, a Chicago train ticket issued to Tessier by the military fell out. It was never used. He apparently gave it to his girlfriend for her to give back to him at some future date. But for whatever reason, she didn't or maybe she couldn't find it. So the question was then, if he never used the train ticket, how did he get to the physical he allegedly failed? 
This proved harder to verify than it should have been because there was a government warehouse fire in 1973 that destroyed thousands of military records, including Tessier's. So investigators reached out to a military archival historian to try and see if there was somehow else to verify the alibi. He told them that if he had indeed went to a veteran's hospital for any procedure before the warehouse fire, which he would have had to for the physical, then the military administration would have copies of all his military medical records, including the induction physical. The investigators checked and Tessier was recorded as having a procedure done two years before the fire. This was grounds enough to have his medical records to be subpoenaed. And as it turns out, that Tessier did not have any type of physical on the day Maria disappeared. But let's go back to the photo. So the actual photo itself, he signed it Johnny. So we know at least he used Johnny as a nickname. And Kathy was showed photos and there is a slight issue here. And I noticed it the first time I looked at the lineup and we'll link it in the usual places. But I was a little bit bothered when I first saw it because the picture of Tessier is clearly different from the other ones. All photos had the same white background, except for Tessier's, which has a dark background. And he is wearing a white shirt when all the other pictures have dark jackets. The other photos are clearly yearbook photos when we know for a fact that Tessier got kicked out before that. But Kathy does pick Tessier. She says that, yes, that's Johnny. I remember him after all these years because my mother made such a big deal that I had to remember this guy's face. I was going to be the person to be able to solve this for Maria. So despite the fact you're talking about over 50 years after this has happened, Kathy is extremely confident that this guy is Johnny. Now, it's important to point out that when she was younger and looking at the photos, Kathy was never showed any photos of Tessier in any of the photo lineups she did in the original investigation. That is despite the FBI investigating him at one point. But you clearly have a new investigation here with new pieces of evidence and an eyewitness. Yes, we do need to consider that this is something that happened a long time ago, but you have someone who was there and she identifies this person as being Johnny, and not to mention that he went by the name Johnny. And then it leads on to kind of a strange twist. They bring him in and interview him. They actually show him the same lineup of photos that they showed Kathy before the trial. And he looks right past the photo of himself and says that he doesn't recognize any of these people. He's then told that that is him right there and he argues that it can't be. It's all very, very strange. And if you watch any media around this and see this interview, I think it's going to strike you pretty odd the way he was acting when he was being interrogated. He was talking about Maria saying how pretty of a little girl she was and just making very uncomfortable comments it just made me very uncomfortable i agree i watched his these videos and i thought wow he's um not trying to sound innocent there the way he's talking about maria it definitely seemed odd which is strange considering he is a former police officer he knows how these interrogations work you think he would have played it a bit smarter exactly maria's body was exhumed which I imagine was a very difficult decision for her family, to see if more evidence could be found before the trial. 
Forensics had come so far since Maria's death, there was a chance there was more information that could be found. The forensic anthropologists examining Maria's remains thought they found some marks around her throat and that it was possible she was stabbed several times. These nicks on the bone really look like what would happen in the course of a stabbing. Although they could come up with this cause of death, it was debated among different experts how accurate this determination was. DNA was taken from Tessier, so more than anything else, you have to imagine they were hoping to find some DNA on Maria. But as most of our audience knows, evidence needs to meet certain legal standards, and that applies to forensic evidence. So not only was there a concern that they wouldn't find DNA, there was also a concern that whatever was found would be too degraded to use in court. When Maria was exhumed, she was in the same bag that she had originally been placed in, and everything was still there as far as her clothing and the like. But any DNA evidence of someone else on Maria would have been damaged by the embalming powder and just by time. Where we are now in DNA and forensic science could not have been predicted by the average person in the 1950s. Even if they could imagine it, it would have been a pipe dream. Storing evidence properly to preserve DNA, it wasn't done because they didn't know they had to do it. And any DNA that might have been there at that time from the murderer, it wasn't there. Also worth noting, since this was part of the state's case, is that when John was in jail preparing for the trial, he supposedly started talking to other inmates about this crime that he did and how he killed this little girl. Three of those inmates decided to testify against him, and none, as far as we can tell, received any favors or incentive from their testimony. They didn't get time off of their sentences or moved to a prison closer to home or anything like that. Though we can't say for sure the inmates didn't expect something in return, it's just that the state didn't guarantee or promise or lead them to believe or give them anything that would sway their testimony. I think jailhouse informants have too much to gain by lying, even without direct promises of assistance. Some probably believe that helping the state would help them in some way down the road. But these particular informants, though, on the one hand, there are three of them. It's not just one guy looking for a break. But on the other hand, all three of them had slightly different stories of what John Tessier said. One version was that he strangled her with a wire. Another was that she was dropped and suffered a head injury. Uh, another was that it was an accidental suffocation. It's worth noting that none of them said it was by stabbing. If these informants are to be believed, Tessier was putting himself at the murder scene. Add to that, his mother was lying about his alibi repeatedly. Because even after she admitted that he had been at the recruiting office, she lied and said he stayed home the rest of the night when he got home, when he himself claims he went to his girlfriend's house to pick her up for a date and then came home and searched for Maria. Then you add in Eileen's deathbed confession, Tessier's previous sexual offenses, even his previous piggyback ride incident, and the prosecution was not deterred that these informants had different details. The case was going to be circumstantial. They did not have forensic evidence, but they had a lot of circumstances to put in front of that jury. And so that's what they did. In April of 2012, Tessier was tried for the rape of his half-sister, which we do know the outcome of that. 
and soon after he was tried for the kidnapping and murder of Maria Ridolf. During the trial, the timeline of events, remember I said at the top of the episode, the timeline was questionable with what happened and when it happened, and this played a big part for both the defence and the prosecution at trial. For the defence, they argued that the deathbed confession was made by a woman who was heavily medicated, she was delusional, and diagnosed with an unspecified psychosis. So there is a lot of reason to question anything she said or that was attributed to her by her daughters. They also debated the relevance of the train ticket. They argued that the train ticket wasn't even a ticket to Rockford. It was a ticket for a trip from Rockford to Chicago, and it wasn't even dated December 3rd. It was dated for November 28, 1957, and back then you had 30 days from the date it was issued to use the ticket. It didn't have to be used on a specific date. And Kathy IDing him as being Johnny in the photo lineup before trial. For his part, as I said earlier, Tessier was never placed in a lineup when Maria first went missing, and Kathy was never shown his picture. However, you would think she would have known of him or seen him around considering he only lived a block away and she did say that she'd never seen Johnny before. And that brings us to the timeline. The defence's story was that on December 3rd, Tessier was in Chicago and failed his military medical and then he was told to take this paperwork to Rockford, which he does. He takes a train from Chicago to Rockford at around quarter past five Tessier calls his family at 6.57, which we know he definitely did from the phone records, and this call lasts two minutes. The defence argues from the evidence and the known eyewitness reports, Johnny abducts Maria at approximately 7 o'clock. Tessier then has a meeting with two Air Force recruiters 15 minutes later, and that lasts about 30 minutes. He then gets picked up by his stepfather in Rockford at 8 o'clock, gets home at 20 past 9, and goes to his girlfriend's house. And the prosecution took the defense timeline and uh, threw it just out the window. As far as they were concerned, there was nothing to verify where Tessier was between lunchtime on the 3rd, when he left the induction center, and when he was seen by the two Air Force recruiters at 7.15. They believe this gap in time is time that he spent back in Sycamore. An acquaintance of Tessier saw his car driving through Sycamore in the mid-afternoon. The man said he did not see the driver, but he also knew how possessive and protective Tessier was over his car. He wouldn't have let someone else drive it. And this wasn't a generic car. It had flames painted on the side, so it was extremely recognizable. And then the ticket, if he didn't take the train, how did he get there? The prosecution argued that not using the train meant he had his car, and he drove his car back to Rockford. And if he had his car, he had time to go to Sycamore and abduct Maria, which they're trying to say happened at or before 6.20, not 7 p.m. like the defense's timeline. This would give him sufficient time to abduct Maria, kill her, and then drive the 40 minutes to Rockford for his interview. Just barely, but it would give him time. It would also give him time to get there for that phone call. Alternatively, someone could have, other than Tessier, could have pretended to be him to make the call, to give him an alibi, but this would bring in a co-conspirator, which wouldn't make a lot of sense. This 
seems like it was much more opportunistic than that. Having a co-conspirator make this alibi phone call for him, that would have meant he had everything arranged far enough in advance and well-timed that he could kidnap a child he didn't even know would be outside at the time and then have someone else call collect. I mean, this is probably why nobody puts this argument up, that it wasn't Tessier making that phone call. It's just too complicated of a scenario. And it doesn't make sense that it was targeted to be Maria because... As you said earlier, she wasn't an outside girl. She usually would have been inside. So if he was targeting Maria, there was no way to know that she was outside at that time. Prosecution also disputed that his stepfather picked him up at 8 p.m. Because his half-sister claimed that her father, who was his stepfather, actually picked her up at that same time about 45 miles or 72 kilometers away from Rockford in the opposite direction from Sycamore, meaning it was just simply impossible for him to be in two places at once. And finally, Tessie's girlfriend. She claims they never had a date that night. It wouldn't have even been possible because her parents wouldn't wouldn't let her go out at night. Instead, he was actually supposed to go pick up some friends at a craft shop in Sycamore at nine, but he never showed. So let's run through these timelines a bit more and see if we can... I don't know, maybe solve it ourselves. Possibly not, but we can try. Good luck with that. The newspapers had reported that officials had set up roadblocks stopping every car moving in and out of town. So the police searched every car. They opened every trunk as they came into town. But wouldn't they have noticed burrs and blood on a man driving his car back home from hiding a body? It is possible that maybe he brought a change of clothes, but... That sounds like an awful lot of planning for a guy that would walk around town holding a wooden sword. I mean, this is definitely a spur-of-the-moment crime. As I said, there was no way to know that Maria would be on that corner on that night. To me, it just seems like a well-prepared predator who was prowling for a victim, and unfortunately, it was Maria he stumbled across. My biggest issue with the timeline is the light speed at which he would have had to do everything. Even if it was a 620 kidnapping, he would have had to kidnap her, murder her immediately, and obviously not dump her body because he wouldn't have time to do that before he got to Rockford. And the streets weren't great because it had been snowing. So I don't really imagine this timeline, no matter how early they try to push it, really making a whole lot of sense to me unless he was traveling at a really high rate of speed the entire time. And let's just say Tessier did take her. He hadn't maybe disposed of the body yet because we know that that forest was very dense. He'd have to push through it, which probably would get him scratched up dirty. And then he's going to talk to those Air Force recruiters at 7 o'clock. Well, where was Maria during this time? We know that the autopsy was done it showed that Maria had suffered from no blunt force trauma to the head. So she wasn't knocked out. And if she had already been murdered, Tessier, as I said, would be covered in blood because he didn't have the time to go clean himself and change before going to the library. And then if Maria was conscious in the trunk of the car, you know, bound and gagged, you'd imagine she would have been able to kick out and get attention I can't see any abductor leaving their victim alive or deceased in a car for half an hour. No, not when they were going to meet with army recruiters. And also where she was left was 
quite far out of the way of where he was traveling between, so that there really is no way he made it out to Woodbine in that time. Even when I look at the prosecutor's timeline, I still can't make it fit, even though Tessier seems, without his alibi, like a really good suspect. So on September 14, 2012, the judge handed down the verdict of guilty. Interestingly, before sentence could be determined, it was the decision of Tessier whether he was going to be sentenced under the 1957 or 2012 laws. But on December 10, 2012, Tessier, or now Jack McCullough, was sentenced to life in prison for the murder of Maria Ridolf. And as with the case of all convictions like this, the appeal process began immediately. In the appeal, it mentioned problems with the photo lineup that was used before the trial. And what happened was the investigator went to Kathy's home and instead of lying all the photos down in a line, hence the name photo lineup, they would put down a couple at a time and then when Kathy said no, they would pick them up and then put the next ones down. Now, we know the backgrounds of the photos are different to the one of Tessier, and Kathy identifies him as being Johnny seconds after the photo was put down. But the defence argued in their appeal that this procedure was biased against Tessier and aided Kathy's identification as him being Johnny. The appeal also made statements about the unreliability of eyewitness identification, even after 24 hours after crime. We've talked about this before, but we found this other study that was done by the New Jersey Supreme Court about the reliability of eyewitnesses. And in this controlled study, they introduced people to someone and then asked them to identify the individual between two and 24 hours later. And it was found that only 42% of the time they made the correct identification after 24 hours. But we're not talking 24 hours. We're looking at 55 years later when the witness was an eight-year-old child. If DNA evidence was only 42% accurate, it would not be allowed in a court of law. This method of identification was especially problematic in the eyes of the defense, because eight days before Kathy made the positive identification of Tessier, the head investigator went to visit her to discuss the details of the case and to also go over her prior descriptions of Johnny in order to refresh her memory. But that leads me to immediately wonder, which parts of the description was he going over with her? Did he go over her complete memory? Did he clarify the story of the man's teeth? I don't want to sound suspicious of the investigator's motives, but this does seem a little off. If her memory is good enough to point someone out to spend the rest of his life in jail, why does it need to be refreshed? Repeated recall of memories, it does help solidify them, but it also helps change them a little here and there and change how we remember things. The goal here needs to be to get the right man and not just someone who happens to be in the ballpark of who we think did it. There is an excellent book called Incognito, The Secret Lies of the Brain by David Eagleman, and he talks about how susceptible the conscious mind is to outside influences. And that includes how hearing a repeated phrase can influence decisions and memories days, even weeks later. And the subconscious mind fills in any lost details in the effort to help the conscious mind continue working smoothly. And it will filter these details from any source available, being visual or auditory cues. 
In this book, there are studies where this has happened and people insist that something is true, even though it definitely cannot be. So there is a possibility that the investigator refreshed Kathy's memory with details to match the picture of a young John Tessier. Then this could have happened and Kathy, she wouldn't have even realised it was happening. But in the appeal is pointed out that she did pick out his photo, even though you couldn't see the gap in the teeth that was so important in the FBI's original suspect description. And on February 13 of 2015, based on the information provided in the appeal, the verdict was that it was ruled that the murder conviction was upheld and the convictions of kidnapping and abduction of an infant were vacated. Because this was outside the statute of limitations in effect for these crimes in 1957, which was three years. So in 2015, Tessier files a motion that basically cannot be denied without a hearing from the state attorney's office. And the state attorney that helped prosecute him originally was now out of his position. And a new one, his name was Richard Shemak, and he decided to look at the case again. Now, what I find a bit odd here was that, yes, he did look at the case files and the history of the case, but he also reads the books that had been written about it. He watches the CNN coverage. He goes through all the media websites that had been done about the case. There is some concern that maybe he was led by some biases from the media, in my opinion anyway. Schmack decided that the timeline of Tessie's alibi was an issue, a big issue, and it was the main reason to exonerate him of all these charges and have him released. If you get seriously invested in this case and you start digging, you'll find this timeline to be the biggest point of contention that you will find out there. And we'll put these conflicting timelines on our website so you can look at them, compare the two, decide for yourself what makes the most sense. And I'd also recommend you look up the first-hand accounts that back up the various timelines, though I'm not sure that's going to actually clear anything up for you because they also vary. I think that makes it even more muddy because the eyewitness accounts team to change dramatically. Exactly. A lot of times when we find inconsistencies, it's in the media reporting, not within the police records. And in this case, it's all over the place. The court agreed that the conflicting timelines and the alibi were just too much to reconcile. Schmack called the evidence he found, quote, clear and convincing that the conviction was wrong. The state had the option to retry, but instead they dropped all the charges a week later. The dismissal was without prejudice, meaning that if future evidence came available, they could retry Tessier for this murder. Where I get stuck on this, I don't find the timeline enough to deem him guilty on that alone, beyond reasonable doubt, regardless of what time she was abducted. I think if Kathy is right and Tessier was Johnny, that doesn't necessarily prove to me that this is the one that murdered Maria. It does certainly give him the opportunity to do so because he'd be the last person being seen with her, so that is the likelihood. But is that the same as actually proving it beyond reasonable doubt with sufficient evidence? Not in my mind. So where I see a lot of people getting hung up on this case when they're reviewing it, did he have enough time and the opportunity to commit this crime? There is nothing there for me to make me think that he is definitely the person responsible. 
There is a bunch of circumstantial evidence, such as, as you said, Charlie, he's got a questionable character. He has a history of sexual deviant crimes. But even that isn't convincing enough for me to confidently say, yes, this is the guy. And even his mom's deathbed confession, she may have just thought he did it. It doesn't mean he did do it or she had knowledge of him doing it. She may just have known he wasn't a great guy and... He wasn't around, you know, when he was supposed to be on that night. She may have just thought he did it, not necessarily had knowledge of it. In October of 2016, the Exoneration Project of Chicago applied for Tessier to be declared actually innocent of the crime. And this is a much higher burden than just being found not guilty. Less than a month ago, on April 12th of 2017, Tessier was declared actually innocent of Maria's murder. Not only that, but in February of this year, a special prosecutor was appointed to look into the state's actions in the trial of Tessier and to look into perjury claims against a police officer. But Tessier is now free and he is living with his wife. He has a stepdaughter and her husband who were and still are an amazing support for his innocence. They run a website where they put a bunch of evidence together It's actually a really good research, especially if you want to dive into all the FBI files. But if it's not Tessier, then who? There have been a couple of other people mentioned as potential persons of interest back in the day. Back in 1997, when the case was originally closed, the detective in charge at the time said he believed William Henry Raymond was responsible. Raymond was already dead at this stage, but he was previously charged in 1988 for the 1951 murder of an eight-year-old girl, and her name was Jane Marie Althoff from Pennsylvania. She was sexually assaulted, and her body was left in the back of a pickup truck. But Raymond was never convicted because, at the trial, the police officer who headed that investigation, he refused to name a confidential informant. Raymond was also a suspect in the 1951 disappearance of Beverly Potts, a 10-year-old from Ohio, and Beverly went to a park near her home and she was never seen again. I won't go into this one because it's on the ever-expanding list of cases I want us to cover one day. It's just an incredibly sad, incredibly rabbit hole of a case. Now, while Raymond fit the general description of Johnny, there really isn't anything else tying him to Maria. I mean, Raymond did confess to a fellow inmate when he was in prison that he committed a murder that matches Maria, but any evidence available would just be circumstantial. And unless Raymond came straight out and confessed, a conviction would have been impossible. There was another suspect the FBI considered fairly early on in this case. And it's not hard to believe that in 1950s America, there were multiple Johns and Johnnies in the area assuming he used his real name with the girls, this other Johnny actually initially placed himself on the corner where the girls were playing that evening. Johnny Hilburn was reportedly from Rockford, and he had gotten lost in Sycamore on his way home from visiting a relative. He stopped on that corner in Sycamore and asked the girls for directions back to the highway, and he said this was about 6 p.m., And he swore, of course, he wasn't involved in the kidnapping, but when the FBI asked him to take a lie detector test, he lawyered up and refused. He would not take it. 
Then he changed his story and said he actually wasn't there. None of this happened. But in May of 1958, he was convicted of, quote, taking indecent liberties with a minor against his own five-year-old daughter. So the FBI decided to go ahead and look into him a little bit more. And they questioned him and they managed to get him into a lineup, but Kathy didn't pick him out. So he wasn't really pursued any further. It was later said that the route that this Johnny would have taken out of town back to his house would have taken him past where Maria was found. But this is some more inconsistent reporting because he was described as being from Rockford in most accounts, but that contradicts that he would have gone through Woodbine on his way home from Sycamore because Woodbine is past Rockford. Timelines, maps, all of these are really important to the case and reports on both are inconsistent. And without forensic evidence as well, it's really easy to see why this case is extremely difficult to solve. I don't really think it's anything to do with any of these persons of interest either. There is nothing compelling. I see the same kind of stuff that might fit into the same MO as to what happened. Maybe they were in the area, but there just isn't that smoking gun, that physical evidence that would convince me that anyone we talked about today was involved. I hate to say that a case is too cold, unsolvable, but without forensic evidence, with most of the witnesses being elderly or having died, I just don't see this one getting solved. Yeah, I don't know. With what I've looked at with this case, and believe me, there is so much out there, I didn't think I'd ever finish. And look, I, I didn't. There is just so much that you can go through. But as you said, Charlie, without the physical evidence this thing was just too thin from the start for a conviction. Is Tessier the right guy? You know what? I have a sick feeling in my stomach that says yes. It's weird, but I feel like they got the right guy, but didn't get the right information. And that's not enough. Not even in my mind. I want this case solved. Someone who murders a seven-year-old. Look, I have a seven-year-old. And if this was my kid, I'd be out for blood for any cost. I would want someone to serve time a whole lot of time for that. And even though my gut says that they possibly got the right guy, I don't think he deserves to spend the rest of his days in jail because the information isn't there to convict him beyond the reasonable doubt. If they would have gotten some minuscule piece of DNA on her that matched him, then that's it, done deal. But we don't have that. If they found a murder weapon in his possession with her DNA on it, again, done deal. But there is nothing. For me, there is reasonable doubt. And that's about all housekeeping time. Firstly, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or your app allows you to, please rate, review and subscribe. Not only do you have the satisfaction of doing a good deed for us, but it helps bring more people to the podcast. Thank you to the following people for their five-star reviews. We have True Crime Crazy, Claire Listening, Sister Mags and Warhol's Cat. And then if you're able to, we have a Patreon for an ongoing monthly donation and a PayPal for a one-off donation. All links are on our website, insightpod.com. We have rewards from as little as a dollar a month. Thank you to the amazing patrons this week. goes to Belle V, Heather E, Jennifer W and Lauren V. If you'd like to have a chat with us, we're on Facebook. There is a page and also a private discussion group, and that's Insight, two words. 
We are on Twitter at InsightfulPod, Instagram at InsightPod, and the emails insightfulpod at gmail.com. Thank you, everyone, and we'll see you next week.